Hi there, and welcome to Blaze Explains. Today we've got an interesting one. We all love the idea of retiring someplace, at least in our imagination. For some people, it's perfect. I think for a lot of people to stay on a beach drinking margaritas is good for two weeks and then you start going crazy. But everybody's different and certainly freedom has a lot to do with it. Nowadays, it seems apparent we will all be working for longer as populations continue to age in the developed world. Retirement may be further off and the ages, the retirement ages being pushed back and pushed back. So it may be further off, but as we will explore today, it's a lot closer for some going to talk about the idea of early retirement and some of the movements that have risen with this trend. I'm sorry if there's a bit of an echo today, uh, just making do with my surroundings. New lockdown has come into effect. I haven't got my ideal setup uh, for acoustics here, but just got to keep churning the podcasts out to you if I am so lucky that you are listening. So number one, what is the FIRE movement? This has gotten a lot of press, but also uh, a lot of uh, coverage on social media. FIRE, the Financial Independence Early Retirement Movement, is a movement dedicated to a program of extreme savings and investment that allows proponents to retire far earlier than traditional budgets and retirement plans would allow. So the basic premise of this is 70% of your income goes to savings. Hopefully this will allow followers of FIRE to quit their jobs and live solely off withdrawals from their portfolio decades before the traditional retirement age of 65 or whatever it ends up being. Fire followers need to be in the workforce until they can save up to 70% of their income. Once their savings reach 30 times yearly income, they may retire. So the 4% rule of the fire movement from a paper called the Trinity Study is to withdraw a maximum of 4% of the portfolio for each year of retirement. The 25 times rule estimates how much money you need to save for retirement. And that works by estimating the annual retirement income you expect to provide from your own savings and multiplying it by 25. For example, if you want $75,000 for your yearly income, you want to withdraw from that while you retire. You have other sources of income of $25,000, meaning you need to withdraw $50,000 per year from your savings. This means you need to have $1.25 million in savings. Hope I got that all right. Don't want to dwell on it. Then the basic numbers are there, though. To be able to save that much, fire followers choose a frugal income. There's many definitions of this, but mostly this means you don't spend more than you earn. Okay, so it's a behavior. Frugality as a theory for early retirement. Live well below your means. This means less investment income is needed to cover your expenses, and you have more to save and invest. Increase your income as much as possible in order to put more away. Aim for high interest rates. The more compound interest you can enjoy, the quicker your money will grow, and the sooner you can retire and save as much as you can. So how do you do that? How to live frugally. This is according to Money Under 30. Create a realistic budget. Know your priorities. Comparison shop. Use your credit card wisely to earn rewards. Sign up for rebate sites. Keep your emergency fund in a high-yield account and get a side hustle. Okay, so let me just start with that and get a side hustle. Okay, that's just a straight-up additional income with your additional time. So, smart idea. Create a realistic budget. A budget is always useful. Um, it's hard to, take to, uh, to stick to, but it's important to be able to predict things. And... Um, well, it's a useful practice in any case. You, well, then the other big thing is sticking to it. No priorities. Well, what's important here? What do I need to spend money on? Do I need to set aside a certain amount of money for healthcare? Sure. And do you need to uh, set aside a certain amount of money for visiting family when you can no longer rely on transport that you don't have to pay for? What I mean by that is if you could cycle everywhere, 
can you quantify how much you're going to need to spend on not cycling everywhere? And then a big one is food, getting the food that you need uh, en masse so that you can then prepare it and use it effectively. And then comparison shop. Now, we all kind of do this, but I guess really, 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 really do it every time you actually have to make a purchase, especially something that you could consider a capital purchase. Use your credit card wisely to earn rewards. I guess it's a way of, you, of, of, of getting freebies, signing for rebate sites, keeping your emergency fund in a high-yield account. And then rebate sites, basically, I'm not entirely sure what they are, but basically cashback rebate sites, Rakuten, Lemony, Mr. Rebates, Quick Rewards, Upromise, Fat Wallet, Penny full shop at home coupon, coupon cactus. Not using a cashback site is like refusing to accept totally free money. Earning cashback from traditional rebates offered by stores is how easy it is to earn a cashback. That's the difference. Normal stores, uh, you'll have to pay, pay full price for the item, then you send in your receipt or some kind of proof of purchase, and the company sends you back however much money is rebate a few weeks or months later. There's downsides there. Rebates are only offered on certain items. You send in your receipt or register your purchase within a certain time frame and you wait weeks, months to get the money. Wouldn't it be great to get them on everything you buy? And this is the idea behind cashback sites. Uh, they act as a middleman, basically, on the internet and they entice people to go through them instead of going directly to retailer's site because uh, they use cashback offering some of the commission money that they make uh, from, from dealing with those websites and funneling sales through. The FIRE movement has 700,000 active members in a subreddit called Financial Independence. A popular blog called Choose FI has been downloaded 1.6 million times, and another FIRE-related blog, Mr. Money Mustache, has been accessed by 30 million unique viewers since 2011. A survey by Harris Poll in 2018 says that 11% of wealthy Americans aged 45 and older have heard of FIRE, while 26% understood the concept. So this isn't just a young person thing, although obviously it is going to be something that millennials have a vested interest in. But it's certainly those who are starting to have one eye on their eventual retirement are thinking a lot more about it, which is quite telling as far as a, a strategic planning aspect goes. So what's the history of it? The movement was born out of, out of the 1992 book, Your Money or Your Life, by Vicky Robin and Joe Dominguez. The first blog that, start, that might have kicked off the fire movement was in 2007 by Jacob Lund Fisker, The Early Retirement Extreme. It, dis it discussed extremely radical ideas such as living alone in a trailer in the woods with less than $8,000 per year. Just a quick sidetrack here. The Unabomber, I think they said he lived on like less than $100 a year because he made everything himself, caught as much of his own food as possible. I mean, just spent nothing. Also didn't have a job. So yeah, if you have a job, then that's going to make a big difference. Um, with remote working, you could live in a cabin in the woods in Lincoln, Montana and get away with it. Starting in 2011, Mr. Money Mustache uh, was a blog often called the so uh, sorry often cited as a major source of fire followings. The blog was written by Pete Adeni, a Canadian who retired after 10 years of working as a computer engineer, high income. He started the blog after six years of retirement because he saw how his peers, who earned a similar income as him, before living, were still living paycheck to paycheck. His main tenet was that happiness is not very expensive. There's only retail companies and ad agencies that try to persuade you it is. It's actually a really good point. I think you have to consider the reasons for, for why you're working. I, could, I couldn't do this because, yeah, two weeks I, you know, in the woods, I'd probably end up chopping down half a forest just to keep myself busy and getting kind of better and better at it as I, I went along. I just can't really sit still. So there's definitely lessons in it for someone like me, and I'm paying attention. But I do think that, that I, I just can't imagine ever really not working uh, other than as a necessity in order to recharge. 
A prominent figure in the fire movement is Grant Sabatier, who famously made a million dollars in just five years. Sabatier credited his success uh, to the Your Money or Your Life book. Meanwhile, his success became an inspiration to fire followers. So there's then the Buy Nothing movement. The idea of Buy Nothing originated in Canada in early 1992 and moved to the US where it became a rejection of the overspending and the overconsumption of Black Friday and Cyber Monday during Thanksgiving weekend. Often, you know, when you think you need to buy something, but if you don't have the money to do it and you just don't, it's, your life's okay. On Buy Nothing Day, people then come together to protest by cutting up their credit cards. To support each other, the Buying Nothing movement also organized the exchange and repair of items they already own. Side note, I didn't have a credit card until I absolutely had to get one because I didn't have a credit score. And so I've been keeping it and I have to keep it for long enough that I get a high enough credit score that I, should I ever need to take out a mortgage, uh, which, you know, one day would definitely like to, um, I'll be able to, but I don't qualify because I never borrowed money off anybody, formally. The Buy Nothing Project started in 20, was started in 2013 by two women, Liesl Clark and Rebecca Rockefeller in Washington State. Now has approximately 1.5 million participants in 30 countries. The rules to the project are, if you want to take part, post anything you'd like to give away, lend or share amongst neighbors, ask for anything you'd like to receive for free or borrow, Keep it legal, keep it civil, no buying or selling, no trades or bartering. We are strictly a gift economy. There's a video on YouTube, and I can't remember the YouTube channel, but it's relatively easy to find, of a guy who has lived with no income, no money whatsoever, uh, for like uh, 30 years or something. And he's basically went into a big depression and, and, and attempted suicide, nearly successfully did, and then just wandered off into the woods. He eats wild onions, he eats what he can find, he eats what he can be given. He goes to the public library in order to consume information and um, appears a very happy guy who's rather you know, anxious and, and, and finds the real world, um, or the real world, the modern world unlivable, but has found peace there. I forget the guy's name and I forget the name of the YouTube channel, but uh, it's easily searchable if you know what you're looking for. I think he's in Colorado, but certainly in America. Why does this group exist? A 2019 report by The Telegraph stated that in the UK, an average person spends more than a thousand pounds a year on clothes. Meanwhile, Britain throws away 300,000 ton tons of clothing each year, mostly ending up in a landfill. Fast fashion has a lot to do with that. But here's some other statistics. The average American throws out about 82 pounds of textile waste per year. Did you know it takes 700 gallons of water to make a cotton shirt? And meanwhile, Clothes can take up to 40 years to decompose. So there is an element here um, of environmentalism, and that's important too, especially to the millennial generation and younger. The philosophy behind the early retirement movement and Buy Nothing Project. Cynicism. Now this is where it gets really, really interesting, and the idea of... Uh, the, the reason I decided to turn this into not just a summation of the fire movement, which only takes us about this far into the podcast, uh, but into the philosophical roots of this that you can draw in that are interesting. And here's the big one, cynicism. Stoicism too, but not so much, but cynicism really. Cynicism originates in the philosophical school of ancient Greece that claims Socratic lineages. But to call cynicism a school is still debatable. Okay, so we lay that out then. The origin of the term cynic is the word kunikos, meaning dog-like. I guess that means living with only what you really need within the world. There are three stories on how the word cynicism was formed. The first two explain the source using the figure of Antisthenes, while the third story uses the figure of Diogenes of Sinop, aka Diogenes the Cynic, best story ever, which we will get into shortly. The way cynics live is that they bark at those who displease them and spurn Athenian etiquette, 
living from nature. The cynic conception of ethics is that virtue is a life lived in accordance with nature and opposing conventions. Diogenes breaks etiquette by publicly carrying out activities an Athenian would perform in private, such as eating, drinking, even masturbating in the marketplace. I'm not advocating that. Cynics are not relativists. Nature replaces convention as the standard of judgment. The cynics believe that it is through nature that one can live well and not through conventional means such as etiquette or religion. Now, elements of cynicism. Freedom advocated in three forms. Freedom of liberty, self-efficiency, and freedom of speech. I can say what I want, I can do what I want, and I don't have to rely on anything. The training. In order to live a cynic life, one must endure the mental and physical hardship entailed with such freedom. Therefore, a life of constant training is needed. Examples of cynic training. Diogenes walked barefoot in the snow. Crates got rid of his wealth. So, more on Diogenes. He was a student of Antisthenes, the so-called first cynic, just like his teacher. Diogenes believed in self-control, the importance of one's excellence in one's behavior and the rejection of all that was considered unnecessary in life, such as personal possessions and social status. Diogenes lived an extreme form of cynicism. He owned almost nothing. He lived in a large wine cask, some say an abandoned bathtub, and lived off others' charity. He owned a cup that also served as a bowl, but threw it away when he saw a boy drinking water from his hands. We can't all be like Diogenes, but we can see all the lessons, we can all see the lessons about how much we can simplify our lives, how much our needs can be met without surrounding ourselves with superfluous material possessions. The tale of when Diogenes met Alexander the Great. Diogenes supposedly said, if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. And I love that quote because Alexander was one of these people, so undefeated commander, conquered all the known world and beyond, never lost a battle, died young, is the basis for all Roman, future Greek, and by extension really Western ideals of masculinity and achievement. And everybody has lived in his shadow ever since uh, in terms of when people try to become great men, especially military men, Napoleon, an example. They, they follow in his footsteps or they attempt to. And Alexander, a student of Aristotle, you know, bursting out of Macedonia, conquering the Greek city-states, conquering... Persia, conquering the kingdoms in India that he managed to face in battle, and Egypt. I mean, well, you can, you can Wikipedia this, but I've always imagined someone with that kind of restless assault, his only satisfaction was going to come from the conquest. It was clearly not going to come from the material possessions, because then he would have stopped. You know, he would have stopped far before. It's sort of like, if you get so rich that you have $200 million to your name and the investments and the properties that come with that and the sort of security that comes with it, what is the difference between your life and a guy who's worth $65 billion? I mean, it's sort of so not the point then. And I would argue that for the people who are worth $65 billion, it was never the point. I think for Alexander, the wealth or the power wasn't the point. The point was the concept point is the process or as uh, the motivational speaker Eric Thomas says you have to fall in love with the process that's the best part not the result so this doesn't surprise me if I were not Alexander I would be Diogenes this can also be translated to say someone like Alexander with all their riches had nothing to offer Diogenes who was totally self-sufficient which is a form of incredible independence the radical implication is that we can be not only as happy as kings we can be happier by virtue of our self-sufficiency. And who would know that more than one of the most impressive kings in history? Now, there are a series of counter-ideas here, but I, I do want to touch on one more movement here, which is so massive as 
as to require its own topic, um, and that's Stoicism. And um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, he's obviously the most famous proponent. But, you know, I think he describes the act of sex. What is sex but the, the act of friction and, and lubrication? That's definitely not the exact quote, but that is what he's saying. And, and he says you have to view things as what they actually are in their raw form and not obsess over, over what it can mean. Now, but, you know, how that ties in to the retire early movement is not quite so clear just because it's almost more of a successful strategy for business. So for someone who, unlike Diogenes, went, goes the other way, like Alexander, it sort of suits them more. And also the big reason is I'm planning to hopefully do a whole episode on Stoicism, um, which will be nothing compared to the episode I'd like to do one day, hours and hours long, and sequences and, and, uh, and documentaries if I'm so lucky. Uh, but for another time, certainly. Although I'm just going to make a note now and say... I'm going to make sure that this is in the schedule if it isn't already, just before we get into the counter-arguments. So counter-ideas and criticism. Executive labourers don't reach the peak of high-earning salaries until their 50s or 60s. Those who retire early won't be able to enjoy this. So there's you know, a question of sacrifice potential there, which certainly is going to come, uh, regardless of what happens, but perhaps comes far worse if you are not ready for it. And then if you do decide that you want to go back into the workforce, it's far, far harder when you haven't been working. The concept of the 4% rule was based on a 30-year time horizon. For those who expand their time horizons to 45 years, the number falls to 3.5%. Imagine if someone retires at 35 and lives long enough to reach 90. Then their time horizon increases to 55 years, which would make the 4% rule totally inapplicable and to be honest this is my biggest concern is we have no conception of, of what that time horizon is going to be like it's almost certainly going to be a lot longer uh, than it currently is and th the problems with this strategy is i think it's great but if you stop at 35 you're in kind of big trouble i think you're almost guaranteeing that that trouble is going to happen but i guess maybe it's easier just to open a bar somewhere if you're used to living frugally now living frugally sometimes misses out on a key part of the story above average income gives access to capital and to information that's a big deal. You certainly learn more when you're working more. And when you're earning more, you learn more from the work that you're doing. Liz from the Instagram account, but in loads of different ways. In loads of different ways. From seeing stuff and you're understanding stuff uh, at a higher level because it's being targeted to, your, to you as the audience. Liz from the Instagram account, Frugal Woods, says, I'm very aware that my frugality is elective and there's so much privilege that goes into choosing your lifestyle, whatever it is. I think it's very important for me to recognize that the way in which I experience frugality is not going to be the way in which everyone experiences it. There is a channel on YouTube called Invisible People, and it's one of these channels that it highlights the stories of homeless people and gets them to speak on camera. And I'm listening to this guy, and as I often rant on, I've spent time in the developing world, and you know we don't know how lucky we have it, and there's incredible potential there, and it's incredibly exciting, and also both better than people think it is so as not to be patronizing, but people don't understand the ways in which their lives in the developed world are better because they haven't learned to appreciate it because they've never been somewhere that doesn't have effective sanitation or a power grid. You know what I mean? So this is, this is kind of an important thing, and, and Liz here recognizes this, Frugal Woods. But the YouTube channel Invisible People, I was speaking to a guy who said, yeah, I'm, I wasn't speaking to him, the, the guy is. I'm, I'm a heroin addict. Uh, I'm just not ready to quit because I know that my head's not in it, so there's no point going through it until I know that I really want to. And it's my fault. And he goes, but I, as a homeless person in America, am living a live a life that is more comfortable than 90% of the world. 
And maybe it's not that high, and certainly not with the amount of uh, alleviation of poverty that's happening. Uh, but certainly that's still true to a large degree. And so, you know, if you choose to retire early, you are benefiting from the security that comes with being in a well-structured and well-ordered society with a lot of wealth, with powerful institutions, with law and order, um, that you just wouldn't be able to get that protects your ability to do that. And certainly in someone like, like the United States or, or other Western democracies allows you to have your freedoms protected no matter who you are. You're not going to be sacrificed on the altar of development as you may be if you are living, let's say, a similar, a similar existence but through no uh, desire or choosing of your own in a developing country. You know, sort of on the fringes of, of society, not really within the systems, not even having a bank account, not having the financial literacy to understand it. So there's so many things here that this is a privilege of that you can only have if you've been part of a culture that imbues us with all this knowledge that you just take for granted and all the security that you take for granted, which we consider as background noise uh, most of the time because we just can't tell how incredibly difficult it is to get that. But it's very important to learn it. Some problems why people cannot say up to 70% of their paycheck as laid out by the Financial Times. When the Financial Times lays out the problems, you need to listen. Most youths are struggling to even pay rent. That's a big problem. Many spend more than half their income on rent. Those who can manage to live with their parents use their money for a property deposit, not a retirement fund. Having a baby will make living expenses higher. The 4% rule looks increasingly too optimistic as global growth stutters and bond yields are negative. And the last one, the frugality... It isn't taking the money to the extreme that some fire devotees claim. Then, sorry, isn't taking money to the extreme that some fire devotees claim. Doesn't that make the whole thing self-defeating? Last one, frugality. If you take the money to the extremes that the fire movement proposes, does the process not become self-defeating? Well, maybe. Here are the cons of early retirement from Investopedia: possible declines in mental health. There's certainly plenty of studies to suggest that. Staying mentally active and, and engaging in learning and um, with others and with society and with a job keeps, you know, staves off things like Alzheimer's and just keeps mental health in general far better. Certainly if I don't work and I don't do anything, I really struggle. It's the only time I struggle really kind of mentally is, is if I'm, I don't have something to do because then my mind's still whirring at the same speed. So what am I supposed to do with it? And I think a lot of people are like that. But I also think normal people are like that too. It's a standard thing. We need something to do. It's not a natural state to just do nothing. Smaller social security benefits. Well, this is the normal thing that you'd re rely on, right? It's a social safety net. You're not going to get as much. It's possible that if more people do it, this is also going to affect the society as a whole. Now, retirement savings need to last longer, obviously. You're probably going to live longer and you need to make it last longer. So you're kind of playing a slightly dangerous game. How are you going to find suitable health insurance without an employer? This is a changing thing. You have no idea how you could get sick and you just won't have a way to deal with it. Boredom and the feeling of missing work. Well, this is a big one. It goes into mental health. It's not natural to do nothing. And it's quite possibly really terrible for you. Then the next thing is, if more and more people do nothing, then the people who are doing something, the burden is going to start to fall on them as these society-wide changes take effect, assuming that they do. And then criticisms regarding the buy nothing day and movement. It's an empty gesture, a way to make diehard shoppers feel bad, but it doesn't have any impact towards the global economy or consumer sen sentiment as a whole. Those who participate at buy nothing day may just go shopping at the same retailers the next day. And I think that kind of brings us to a nice closing point here, which is basically that the lessons from the fire movement are interesting in that 
they drive home the importance and the benefit of really analyzing what your spend is, especially in times of hardship, for your personal um, needs, but also for your business needs and your strategic planning for things that you want to do in your life, whether that's at work or at home or with your kids. I think it really makes you think about deciding what's important and a bit more. And I think the most interesting thing is it adds to the panoply of stories we have that create the body of work that is human philosophy and drives home the, the relevance of it today. And the phrase comes up, all is Greece and Greece is all. No matter where you see, you still see it. But you do still see it now. And it's not just Greece. It's, it, it's everywhere. It's in Buddhism. That's just the example we drew on today. It, tribal societies in every corner of the globe. So this is not a new thing. But what's interesting is that it is its modern expression. So it, it has its issues and it has its obvious drawbacks and it has its quirky exponents. But it keeps the, the stream of individual freedom and, I guess, rebellion against traditional roles in society and the roles people play within ever-larger human societies. It keeps the debate of that alive. And that, I think, is a great contribution. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was enjoyable for all of you. Uh, again, as usual, if you have any ideas as you're listening to this, find me on any of the social medias and um, let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you think you'd like me to talk about more. Did you like when I spoke, to, spoke about Diogenes? I certainly did. I'm sure you could tell. Let me know if uh, more curious Greek bearded people are worth covering. Thanks so much and see you on the next episode of Blaze Explains. Take care. Bye-bye and stay safe.